Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Momenta Edge podcast. I am Ed McGuire, the Insights Partner, and in our podcast series, we endeavor to bring creative thinkers, doers, and writers to uh, share their ideas in a longer form, in a conversational form, so that we can explore the implications of, of innovation, technology, uh, as it relates to connected industry and the economy at large. So today we've got a guest who I discovered through reading a book that was recommended on a, on a blog. It was a blockchain blog. Uh, Nick Gogarty is the author of The Nature of Value, How to Invest in the Adaptive Economy. And when I started reading it, it just made an enormous amount of sense to me that there were the, there are the parallels in nature and the, the creation of economic value that he's he's laid out in 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 great detail. It's an it's a uh, eminently readable book. It actually tied in with another one, uh, some of the work by Kevin Kelly, of whom I whom I I am a huge fan of his uh, work, What Technology Wants and and Out of Control, which are which are classics in, of thinking. But uh, Nick is also the co-founder of SolarCoin, and in our our prior conversation, uh, Nick has some views that are pretty closely aligned with our first podcast guest, Tony Seba. So we'll talk a little bit about that later. But, you know, first of all, first part of the, the podcast, we'll, we'll talk about the nature of value and, and the work that he's done. Uh, Nick, it's, it's great to have you join us. Uh, thank you very much. I'd pleasure to, uh, to be here with your audience. Great. So, so just to start things off, could you share some of your background and uh, how it brought you to write the Nature of Value? Sure. Um, a little bit of a, a convoluted uh, story. I won't go into fully, but um, many, many years ago, I started out very interested in economics um, as, as a kid. Um, you know, traded yen futures as a teenager, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, ran off to college. All excited to learn about economics, uh, macroeconomics, investing, blah, 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 and quit after six weeks um, and, and ended up studying cultural anthropology. Um, and the reason I quit was because I, I, I found the, the, some of the, the fundamental principles and the, the, let's say, rigor of, of traditional macroeconomics wasn't very uh, robust or interesting. Um, and I wanted to study something that I could only learn in college, um, which was cultural anthropology, and I figured I could read business books and other things along the way. Um, that being said, I ended up getting an MBA um, uh, from from one of the grand écoles in France, uh, on dealing with um, quantitative approaches to hedge funds. Um, I've worked with with one of the world's largest hedge funds. Uh, in addition, have been a renewable energy analyst. Have also been a, a chief analyst for a research, a scientific research institute uh, modeled on the MIT Media Lab. Uh, where I was overseeing uh, 70 PhD projects, everything from uh, AI to quantum computation to protein folding, material sciences, life sciences, etc. Um, so I have a real interest in how things um, work, how they function, uh, the scientific method, and then an interest in economics. 
um, and how our economy works and functions, you know, as as a process, as a complex, um, you know, adaptive system, which I would argue is, is pretty much just evolution, uh, evolution as, as a theory of change. Great. So uh, let's let's dive into the your, your theory because I think this is uh, it, it's a really interesting parallel that you're you're drawing between genes and 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 inos. Could you talk about what? Sure. Uh, yeah. Let's let's talk about that that theory. If you could really walk through the concept and and how that gets ex really expressed in the uh, in, certainly in the book and and in your thinking. Sure. Sure. I'll, I'll start a little bit with with kind of where the book started, and then and then we'll go from there. Um, the book started originally because I was working with a value uh, a value based hedge fund um, at one point, and obviously interested in in the guy behind value, um, you know Warren Buffett and, and Munger. Their thinking approaches um, and obviously the outcomes had very much a first principles approach, um, and and so the question became, okay, um, how do they make so much money? Um, how do they do so well? Ultimately, the, the answer was, okay, it's survivability of the company, um, survivability of excess margins. Then, of course, the question is, okay, where do those come from? You keep asking the, the why and the how questions enough, and you end up with a, a first principles approach. And it ended up being about, okay, where does, where does innovation come from? Where do new things come from? Um, how do new concepts or ideas in our economy replace or substitute old ones? Um, who survives and for how long? Um, those are really, really interesting questions. And the more I probed into that and asked those questions, it became very obvious that the the analogs or the the relationship to uh, processes of, of evolution biology um, are, are a one for one map um, with a few missing components. And and one of those um, missing components I, I labeled an, an inno or was short just for an innovation which is basically just a unit of change. It's a unit of innovation um, in the economy. In, in genetics, we, we call it a gene, which is just a, a piece of information that allows for change in the biological or the phenotypic expression of a species or a behavior. And in economics, I just came up with the you know as kind of a, a placeholder. And once I had that piece, um, it was pretty easy to put everything else um, in place. And then I used an innovation framework, which is one of the few that I've come across that's what I call um, robust. There's a lot of talk about innovation and this and that, and most of it's junk or garbage. Um, and what I mean by that is it's not science. It's not falsifiable. Um, the, the, the model I used, which I, I reference, is from the Doblin Group, and it has these 10 vectors of dimensions of innovation. Um, and the Doblin Group spent 30 years uh, researching um, both the innovation and the impact it had on uh, margins, sustainability, profitability, and other things. And so that became kind of the core framework um, for building a first principles thesis of an economy um, from innovations which allow for trade, sustainable economics, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I thought that was uh, it was really interesting, and and in the book, I'll I'll just I'll I'll uh, the those ten criteria are business model, networking, enabling process, core process, product performance, product system, service, channel, brand, and customer experience. And as as you explained, there the the companies that are able to have you know really strength in 
all 10 of these criteria are those that have, that have been able to, uh, to really generate sustainable value over time. Um, how, how do you think about, I mean, as, as, you, as you look at, say, a startup or uh, we'll get a little bit uh, deeper into some, some aspects of competition, but you know, how, sure. how, how do you apply this to, to thinking about startups? Well, it, it, it's, it's um, interesting because ultimately what you do is say, and, and this is the research from Dublin that was really interesting, was there's a high degree of correlation between um, excess profitability, excess margin, um, and the number of um, uh, types of innovation that the company has, right? So uh, if all you had was price and you got one point of innovation differentiation, that can be somebody's going to do something about that <laughs> pretty soon, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, un unless you've got some of the others that support that price. Um, you know, when I think of startups, one of the real challenges, and, and it's kind of a rule of thumb, let's say, in the Valley is, let's say you're in hardware, which the Valley doesn't really lark hardware, um, but one of the rules of thumb is, unless it's 10x better, faster, um, cheaper, et cetera, they won't touch it. And the reason is because, um, you know, usually those solutions, even if they're covered by patents or et cetera, are literally, um, they're engineering problems. And so someone will engineer a slightly better solution um, and it'll, it'll knock out um, the precursor. The curse of a company, and the important thing using the evolution metaphor again, think about companies or industries is to think in terms of life cycle. You know, how long will this company, this product, this service uh, be alive? How long will it make sense? Um, and what you find is that the shorter life cycles are for companies or industries are associated with you know, single points of, of differentiation. So if someone were to present a startup or a new business idea and it's, you know, we're going to make, I don't know, pick a commodity product or a close to one, you know, we're going to make hamburgers and they're going to be a little bit cheaper than everyone else. Okay, that's not really super interesting. Um, an interesting example, and just, you know, I'll use a, an example that's easy for people to understand, of a company that has multiple dimensions of innovation, because usually people, when they hear innovation, they think of new bells and whistles, right, or a new type of whistle or a thing. But it's really about the 10 dimensions that are most interesting. So a really interesting example of that, in a very... Um, stayed and, and boring and low margin uh, business is Ikea. So mm -hmm. you've got Ikea, um, clearly differentiate on brand, but anyone can come up with a new brand. Um, they have obviously a price point differentiation, you know, eventually after much struggle at home, at work, uh, you, know, you put together the table with the bookcase and you've got a fairly good, you know, affordable bookcase relative to what other, other options you got or, or storage. Uh, customer experience, um, the capacity, I think I read somewhere that Ikea consumes something like 10% of all of the, um, the wood that gets harvested in Europe or some crazy metric oh. like that. So obviously there's some, you know, there's, there's huge economies of scale and scope in the enabling processes. Um, in the design, obviously, if you've got, you know, 20 Swedish designers obsessing uh, over a bookcase or a thing, um, but you can spread that cost over massive scale, you have, you know, huge edges purchasing, mm -hmm. et cetera. So they have many of the footprints and a wildly successful business, albeit one you know, that, that none of us can invest in because it's privately held. Um, but that's an interesting way of thinking about, oh yeah, innovation is across multiple dimensions. It's not about a faster processor or an X or a Y. Uh, Tesla, in terms of their automobiles, mm -hmm. they did really, they're doing interesting things in innovation in the fact that it's not just the cars they're thinking about, they're thinking obviously about first principles of 
the battery, which drives the function, um, distribution, so they don't have retailers. Um, so they've got a few of the things that are interesting. Now, whether or not Tesla becomes the, the GM killer of the future or, you know, et cetera, it remains to be seen. But if you're looking at Tesla, and it's not a startup, but it's a company everyone's kind of familiar with, so I thought I'd throw it out there. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about the different um, pieces beyond just a car. So there's the business model, right? So the, the Tesla 3, they took the money up front. Um, and some other aspects of where they may be moving in terms of um, electric vehicles. Do they end up manufacturing uh, vehicles that are designed because they have such an edge on the data capability for fleet services? Mm -hmm. um, lots of things. So the real interesting assessment for a company or a startup is to take these 10 vectors of innovation um, and, and say, okay, what have we got here? Mm -hmm. How much more different is it from someone else? And then take a measure of each one of those things in terms of its anticipated life cycle. So if, if you and I have restaurants and I differentiate my product, uh, my pizza is exactly identical and mine's you know a dollar cheaper than yours, it's not going to take you very long potentially to drop your price by a dollar. Right? So the, mm -hmm. the lifetime of that innovation is fairly limited. So we'd say it's a fairly weak um, differentiator. If you have lots of strong differentiators of many types so that no single random out of the blue innovation or entrant can knock you out, then you've got something interesting. You have a, a much more defensible position and that defensibility and the, the expected duration of that defensibility you know, is, is by definition a moat. Um, you know, one of the interesting factoids in the book and, and I'm sure all the, the Buffett and Munger fans out there will probably know it, is I think, I can't remember what it was, but the average age of a Berkshire holding company um, was something like 90 plus years. Mm -hmm. um, just, just an amazing, an amazing fact about you know the durability of the businesses and the ability to to survive and and create the the cash flows etc. That, that fuel that machine. There are some other aspects to to Berkshire that are structural around asset allocation mm -hmm. um, that we can talk about later. But yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I thought it was really interesting if we move to uh, some of the more mature companies like uh, sure. like GM. I, you, in the in the book, you yeah. talk about how they really evolved from being a uh, you know a, a force that was um, that was you know that was really a. Uh, I mean, they they were leading in in many dimensions of innovation, and then over yeah. time that degraded. And you you were contrasting that with uh, with Walmart. Um, yeah. And you know, how did how does how do these principles apply to to more mature companies? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing to look at the the company is um, also to look at the the level of maturity in the industry, um, and and say, okay, is is this an industry that's susceptible to change? I mean, uh, GM you know has um, it faces significant um, challenges, both in the product line, but also the the whole business model. I mean, the entire auto sector is going to face some real challenges um, with with electric vehicles and um, and new new purchasing behaviors. Um, and what I mean by that is, well, two things: autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. The electric vehicles, um, the challenges there are, um, first of all. Um, the fewer materials, cheaper price point, um, so you have margin, you know, revenue potential challenges there. Price point. The other thing is wear and tear. Mm -hmm. um, 
these vehicles are designed to last for hundreds of thousands of miles. And so all of a sudden, you know, the addressable market shrinks for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, that's a huge, a huge issue. And then on a buying behavior, if Uber or GM even gets into the, the aspect of offering transportation as a service um, with autonomous vehicles, well, you know, it's one thing to sell something to the average customer and squeeze, you know, 20% margin out and charge for undercoating and God knows what, you know, as a service. It's a whole nother uh, thing to negotiate a multi-billion dollar deal around vehicles. So, for example, I think it was Uber bought something like 24,000 Volvos mm -hmm. um, recently for their, uh, for their um, you know, uh, fleet and, and or negotiated the deal. And, and one can assume that the, the price paid wasn't, wasn't what, you know, anyone else would see on the sticker on the lot. Uh, so you're looking at margin compression, you're looking at revenue compression, other things in the face of an industry that's also going to become more tech driven and is going to operate. And I'll go back to the life cycle thing, the innovation, the operating innovation life cycles of the technology sector and space are a lot faster mm -hmm. um, than those in the auto industry, you know, rolling out a new platform, having to distribute products um, through dealers um, and a dealer network and, and all the relationships there. Mm -hmm. So those are a lot of challenges for uh, GM or, or any incumbent uh, players in that space. Right. So that's one way to, to think about it. Okay. No, that's, that's great. Now, moving a little further down the uh, downstream, uh, you, you talk about the, you know, this concept of economic clusters, which is essentially right. how, how we think about competition and, and how the, really the dynamics really play out uh, Around that, around these these areas of, of competitive di competitive differentiation that arise from innovation, right. right? And 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 that concept of a cluster, sometimes people use it as a would kind of define that as a a market, although the, the term market is is what we call overloaded. It gets used for lots and lots of things. Um, and the concept of a cluster is really who or what groups are focused around serving some set of, of needs and how vulnerable um, are they? So you know, market's a close proxy. Um, the interesting thing about, you know, the, the concept of, a, of an economic cluster is, um, again, it's this, they live and they die. They're born, they're created, um, you know, and, and then they, they move on. Eventually they get replaced. You know, not, nothing, is, <laughs> not, nothing is forever. Um, and so it's helpful when you're thinking about profits and sustainability margins if you've got a company to really think about the the second order dynamics of okay who else is in who else is in the game who else is in mm -hmm. this this cluster um that might be competing either um symmetrically in a similar way the way i am or asymmetrically and have some kind of an advantage um and so thinking about not just your own uh, mover advantage, but what others' responses is, the second order effects, is vitally important. Um, you know, the, the real case I mentioned in the, um, uh, it has two, two driving factors, but in, in the book, you know, I hint about the, um, the solar energy industry, um, you know, globally, and how a lot of people confused that growth um, of the industry, which went from a couple billion dollars to you know, billions and billions and, and you know, 100x growth, um, they confused um, the growth at the revenue top line with margin capture of the individual um, entities there. And what ended up happening was 
solar energy is effectively a commodity. Whoever can deliver the, the cheapest watt um, wins, right? Whoever can give me the watts for the, the fewest dollars. And the technology evolved so quickly in that space, and there were very few barriers to enter that competitive cluster or that marketplace that someone would come up with an edge or some advantage. Um, and within two, three, four, whatever years, um, it would be gone. Mm -hmm. And it's a classic case, a classic case of A, thinking in clusters, and also thinking about, well, what's the differentiation? And effectively, the, the point of differentiation for many of, many of the solar providers was um, a price differentiation driven by, let's say, a single piece of technology or type of technology. Mm -hmm. And in that case, the moment that cluster, which was very price-defined, um, the moment someone came by and said, hey, I will sell you X, um, you know, five cents cheaper, it was, it was done. It's a little bit right. like, you know, two gas stations right next to each other, and one of them's got fuel for $3, and the other one has fuel for $3.10. Um, and assuming everything is equal, um, <laughs> you, you can see how it's going to play out over time. Right, exactly. And, and I think that's, um, it, it's you know, quite interesting to see how the, um, you know, this concept of, of I mean, you talk about this concept of competitive balance and, and instability that, uh, that emerges mm -hmm. from as, as, as clusters mature. And so how, you know, if you're, if, again, if you're a, if you're, if you're a large company thinking about uh, right. thinking about clusters, a lot of times there's a, uh, this belief that, that those, that the state of a cluster is going to be static, right? And, and I guess that right. also right. ties into the, the concept of moat and yeah, that's not the case, right? So how does, how does your theory, how, you know, how, how does your work really address those, um, uh, you know, the relationship between competitive moats and, and, and the change that, that happens in the, uh, you know, through yeah. clusters and, and ongoing innovation? Well, I think that the first question is, is, is the correct one that, to, to ask that you mentioned, you know, is change. Just assume that the change is, is inevitable um, and that eventually every company um, or industry is going to, um, you know, die or change in some new unrecognizable form. And that is a very powerful thing to acknowledge. <laughs> death, death is a powerful thing to acknowledge because it allows us to ask, okay, when? When and why? And play mm -hmm. that game. Um, and if when and why is, is far enough out, 20, 30 years, then okay, then, then we've got something we can look at margins and all the rest. If you can't come up with a when and why, then that's you know, just disconcerting in its own right. You know, an interesting example of a, a company with an interesting... Uh, let's say cluster dynamic where the cluster of competitors is forcibly removed almost by physical space mm -hmm. uh, would be a company like uh, like a home base mm -hmm. um, or Home Depot rather, Home Depot mm -hmm. where, you know, where they own a space that kind of define the market. Or it's like uh, the example I give in the book. Again, these are well-worn, but the reason I'm mentioning them is because it allows people to attach, you know, Walmart in small towns. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Walmart goes in, they dominate the small town and they have a competitive edge um, for as long as you know, as long as the, the small town exists. Those are those are interesting ways to think about um, clusters and and the durability of a cluster. So if you as a company can go in and define a cluster, that's really interesting. Now you asked about large companies, and that's tough because a lot of large companies aren't really good at defining um, uh, their different markets or products. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so they do lots of things and they say, oh, we're this big company, et cetera. 
a really interesting example of a guy who did an excellent job of recognizing the power of focus in clusters um, was Steve Jobs when he went mm -hmm. back to Apple. He, um, you know, stepped away. Most people are probably familiar with the story. Came back in roughly in 2000, and Apple was making printers, cartridges, and everything. And it was a classic case of, of people said, hey, we can slap our logo on it. We'll have an ecosystem of products, blah, blah, blah. He came in and said, no, we're going to have four products. This is before the iPod and, and the iPhone, et cetera, but he was going in a rationalizing line. He said, and he drew an axis for the professional and the amateur user and the desktop and the um, mobile. It's like, here, here are our four quadrants. Uh, these are our clusters. We're going to own them. We're getting out of every other business. Um, we're getting out of, you know, at the time they actually got out of the retail, um, the store relationships, until they could re-enter and control the entire um, user experience. But it's an interesting case of going in and redefining um, the market and the cluster to something that was meaningful and useful. Um, really interesting case study in that. So if you're a large company, you know, what you'd say, is if you're the chief strategist or head of a large company, I think um, rationalizing and sometimes shrinking the product line um, can be a good thing, unless that's part of your competitive advantage, which you know one can argue Amazon, for example, um, let's just go with the, the products, you know, the platform is the edge, right? And then mm -hmm. you want to have you know, zillions of other products that you're a, a gateway um, uh, for. Right. And, uh, and of course, uh, an Amazon is certainly operating on uh, many of those many of those dimensions of of innovation simultaneously. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and for large companies that are industrial. So the, the companies that Momenta works with, I mean, we span the. Okay. They can from from startups to you know existing existing companies, um, mm -hmm. but you know in many in many uh, or are you know well established industrial and technology firms that do have yeah. established com competitive modes. Uh, you know how how do you think about maybe the traditional way that that strategists and businesses have thought about their competitive modes? And if you could talk about how there are some. There's, there, there are certainly some risks to, uh, I guess, mis, uh, uh, misappropriating value, misappropriating the perception of value uh, across, you know, what a, if you're a large company, what you perceive is your unique moat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, um, that's a huge, um, that, that is the huge risk, right? I mean, the, the manager, you know, the, the manager of the organization has a couple of, of, if you're the CEO of the organization or, or business line, you have a couple of, of, of key responsibilities. And, and one of them is um, having the right vision um, and, and communicating it over and over again, which is probably, you know, protect the key business or the key asset. Um, and that might be uh, a relationship with customers, maybe a product, um, et cetera. And then, of course, the capital allocation, which is, is the, the function of determining how do you protect shareholder value. Um, I would just say it's not really easy. Um, firstly, obviously, if it was, you know, everyone would do it and everybody's businesses would be successful. It's very competitive out there. Um, I think it's, it's really, um, if possible, have a process and a very robust one. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I say process is because a lot of decisions around um, innovation or capital allocation become very emotional or they become very personal. And it's very easy to rationalize, 
especially if you've been with the company for you know, X period of years or it's a brand that's been around forever, to keep going with it, right? Or this is going to work. We're the best. Um, I'll give you an example. I, I guest lecture at Columbia University in, in the Value Investing Program um, hmm. uh, for fun and um, really enjoy it. And, and um, you know, one of the cases I teach, I, I go in there and I say, hey, we're going to study an imaging. We're going to study three imaging companies. And we're going to study their innovation and, you know, how, how they look on these, these 10 vectors of innovation and whatever. And so the three, in, uh, three imaging companies, <laughs> um, two are startups and one is a giant imaging company. And, and the, the first startup, you know, raises $30 million from 12 people, blah, 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 goes great, has all the, all the, all the right bells and whistles in terms of their differentiators. Uh, the second one is a $45 billion company that has no points of really differentiation in a dying market. And then the last one is, is, is another startup. And I go through, I explain the companies. And, what I, and then I go back and I re tell the, the, the students, we visit them again. The first two companies are actually Kodak. Huh. Um, but they're Kodak in 1880 and 1890. And they're Kodak in 1997. And then the last company is GoPro. And I, I wrote this case study up when, I, when GoPro just IPO'd. And I explained why Kodak was such a great startup and how nothing changed. And it literally looks like the Apple of its day. Mm -hmm. They had Kodak stores. They differentiated on those 10 vectors and blah, blah, blah. We fast forward to 1997. Um, great brand, great everything. Obviously, you know, companies bankrupt by, by, by 2012, effectively. And then I highlight why GoPro's points of differentiation and the expected life cycles for those vectors they've got are probably good for three to four years. Mm -hmm. And then after that, they've got nothing. Um, that's a useful exercise to look at some other company and say, okay, what are our points of differentiation? So you look at your own company and how long are those points of differentiation going to last, right? So if I'm GM, uh, you know, I've got a dealer network and that's a killer advantage. Um, but how long is that going to be an advantage for? You know, will the laws and regulations change? Will a Tesla show up? What's the barrier to entry to create a new car? You know, you used to have to have billions of dollars of capital. You used to have all this and that. A new electric car doesn't need a whole platform, an engine. Somebody may open source them, et cetera. And so instead of having to produce, let's say, half a million units to have a viable company, is the minimum viable competitor entrant now 20,000 units, 50,000 units? Um, you know, understand where those, where your, your points of strength are and then really have somebody probe to see how long those are going to last and what could change them. But I would argue it definitely has to be a process. Yeah. I, I thought what was, what was really fascinating in the book is, is how you're discussing uh, the, the different uh, velocities of industry, in innovation cycles, and really this, this why it's very difficult in some industries, which are fast moving, say, to be able to calculate sustainable competitive advantage and, and value creation over the long term versus other established industries where there are well-defined competitive dynamics, I guess, where the clusters are relatively stable. And I, yeah. as certainly as venture investors at, uh, at, at Momenta, we also are trying to figure out what those, you know, where those seedlings are going to be. So how do you apply yeah. your, your theories or your principles to identify value that's really at nascent stages and, and that might maybe in fast moving industries? Yeah, I mean, the, the only way to do that, and it's very, very tough, which is why, you know, um, young, young companies need, um, 
you know, need to need to be uh, discounted heavily in terms of, um, uh, you know, their uh, their risk coefficient is is the uncertainty of new entrants and what is the the point of differentiation. Um, you know, earlier I mentioned, you know, I, I'm a very high tech guy, right? I work in blockchain and all this and that. Um, and yet, you know, one of the more interesting you know, companies you could invest in might be, you know, Sherwin Williams, right? They sell paint for 100 years plus or something for a margin because you know where it's going, you know where it's been. Um, in terms of trying to um, assess small or high, high growth companies in terms of what's going to be differentiable and stable, I think um, it's really trying to pick out, again, of the, the 10 innovation categories, um, where somebody has more of those. Where are they going to have lock-in? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so for example, a lot of the, you know, the, let's say the, the thing that's been the thing for the last 10 years, but I won't be as much on the go forward base, you know, social media, it was okay. Where are, where are all the eyeballs going to go and, and where are the advertisers, and the great content? Um, you know, Facebook has lots of, of lock-in, but you know, how big can that get? Um, those things are interesting. It's tougher in a pure tech space. So I advise some really interesting startups in the biotech world and in other areas. And literally all, well, the they can do two things. First, they need to know how much better are they than X. If they're, if they're differentiating on a single uh, feature or performance aspect, they need to know how much better they are. Um, and then the really interesting thing, and, and I think we spoke about this earlier, one of the most interesting pieces of research that, that I came across um, in the book that I'd read before but never really internalized is the power of the experience curve. Um, mm -hmm. and, and for those who aren't familiar with the concept, an experience curve is, is the following, and it's a, a phenomenon that works across um, economies and across you know, disciplines, um, almost universally, is for the doubling of production of a thing, manufacturing of a thing, whether it's a solar panels for watts or... Um, cars or airplanes or whatever, for every doubling of the production of those things, there's a reduction in cost of X percent. Um, so in solar energy, um, every time you double the number of solar panels shipped of whatever type, um, the cost drops between roughly about 20%. Mm -hmm. Not in time, it's managed in units of things produced. Literally the economy, think of it like a giant macro processing machine with all these stuff we produce flowing through it. And every time it doubles the production of an amount of things, cost drops. Well, that's a really interesting phenomena to be aware of because I can't predict which scientist is going to come up with some new form of solar cell or who's going to make a, a 10x, you know, para factory instead of a gigafactory for batteries. But what I can do is I can take a curve, um, a cost performance curve, and say, well, here, I think the market's going to grow X, Y, Z. And by the way, if it's going to grow by X, Y, Z in terms of units shipped or X amount of thing delivered, the cost to do that is going to probably drop by this, this much percentage. And then the question is, you know, if I've got the startup or the company or the capital allocation, am I going to be the person or my firm um, or my investment or my capital allocation going to be the one that's going to make that cut? How long do we have? Um, if we're on a single cost performance um, factor. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, of, of startups, you know, they, they come at things and they say, okay, we, it's engineers or brilliant scientists. And, you know, I used to work in a, in a basic research institute. We'll come up with X. It's 10X better than anything else out there. We'll make a million dollars. 
six. Well, actually, it's 10x better than anything out there. Now ask yourself the question, how much is the market going to grow? And by the way, that growth really isn't your friend. <laughs> the paradox of growth is as the market grows, the cost to produce that thing is going to keep going down and erode your margins. And that paradox is very, very poorly understood um, by a lot of, a lot of people. Huh. Um, and I mentioned earlier the solar industry thing. Yeah, market grew by a factor of maybe 100x, but the cost for each unit of solar energy also decreased by a huge amount. And literally, you know, hundreds of corpses of, of companies that were brilliant and had a moment in the sun for two, three, four, five years um, are gone. Yeah, that, well, that's a that's a perfect jumping off point because I wanted to uh, I wanted to to move to your experience and your views on the you know the big massive transformation that's that's happening in the industry, energy industry. I know we'd spoken a bit about Tony Seba's thinking, but again, right. going back to your experience as as an analyst when. Solar was first getting started. There were there was a lot of argument that it was it certainly wasn't as cost effective as uh, existing carbon based fuel energy generation. But what we've seen certainly in the last decade is uh, I think arguably we have passed the tipping point in many regions where it's it's yeah. going it's already the cheapest form of energy. But would love to get your perspective on uh, what. It, what challenged the industry and, or, and how your thinking evolved and, and, and also how you, where you see the, the, uh, the market evolving from here? Yeah, I mean, um, the thing is, you know, I, I guess I'll, I'll, you know, as opposed to you know, opinion, I'll, I'll reference data points. Um, and for those who want, a lot of this stuff is online. Um, you know, even the, uh, the book, you know, from, from my book, a lot of the, uh, the graphics and the images, like 120 images online, nature of value, blah, blah, blah. So you can find that stuff. The big driver, and I'm going to speak for evidence around energy, is, um, is this thing called Swanson's Law. And Swanson's Law is, again, like Moore's Law, but it's correctly stated in terms of units shipped um, and cost drop. And so every time you double the number of solar units shipped, the cost drops. And by 20%. Now imagine if every time we shipped twice as much oil, the cost dropped by 20%. It used to. Um, oil is a very mature industry. It's not a fast growth industry, right? Uh, barrel shipped every year maybe goes 2 3%, whatever, mm -hmm. um, you know, per annum. Uh, solar grows 20 to 40% per annum, which means its cost function is dropping um, much, much faster. Um, this experience curve effect has been um, recorded for the last 40 or 50 years. Um, so it's a fairly, you know, it's a fairly good bet that it will probably continue for for some time. Um, the other factor that's going to really drive uh, solar in terms of the energy transition is um, cheap storage. And this this is the lesser known story. Tony Seba, your, your early guest, totally nails it correctly in that um, storage. Um, again, it's all about the manufacturing of storage. So we'll ignore what we'll just call it a battery, whatever it is. And the a number of batteries shipped is going to go through the roof um, because every uh, electric vehicle out there is going to need batteries and battery technology. And so what used to cost roughly $1,000 for a kilowatt hour of storage is now about $200. Um, that $1,000 was you know, six, seven years ago. It will approach $100. And as the batteries get cheaper, um, it becomes more interesting for people to 
uh, put batteries in their home mm-hmm. um, or to, to put extra solar panels on their roof because they can store the energy, which is going to accelerate the <laughs> demand for solar energy um, and the batteries, et cetera, et cetera. And so you're looking at a, a situation where I think it was a year and a half or two ago where um, the International Renewable Energy Association said solar energy is cheaper than any fossil fuel, any, any fuel, whatever it is, um, nuclear, et cetera, in 30 countries. That was two years ago. We're probably at you know, quite a few more countries. That curve is accelerating, um, and it's not accelerating at a linear rate. It's accelerating at an exponential rate. Um, you know, and the metaphor I use for that is think about what a market I, – I gave the story earlier about two gas stations. Right? One sells $3, the other one sells for three ten across the street. Who's going to be around in five years? Mm-hmm. Identical product. Assuming the same street traffic, blah, blah, blah. Right. And the question for energy is, okay, imagine that we had, uh, let's, let's imagine that solar was at parity at the same price as, um, you know, diesel or crude oil. You know, what happens to a market that, you know, imagine if, crude, if, if gasoline or, or crude oil prices had gone from $140 down to 10 or 20 and mm-hmm. we're never going back up. And the, the real challenge um, for, for coal or traditional fossil fuels is this market. So you've got baseload equivalent um, solar coming in at seven cents a kilowatt hour or seven cents a kilowatt hour. And you've got um, the raw energy without storage coming in at two and a half cents in some places, 1.8 cents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's 30, 30% of the cost of coal in many countries. And so what's happening is this curve is, is, is unfolding extremely quickly. And again, we'll think in life cycles. The power industry thinks in terms of capital, capex cycles, um, PPAs, fuel agreements in 20, 30-year cycles and operating cycles and facilities. You know, nuclear facilities, 50, maybe even 80 years. You've got a solar cycle that's driven by tech and it's digital and it's smart. And it's operating in, in Silicon Valley type cycles in innovation and getting cheaper. Um, you know, the metaphor I use is, is you know, one, one is the asteroid and one is the dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a real challenge. And, and, and it, it's not going to be an easy um, transition by any stretch of the imagination because those, those traditional fuels um, reflect many people's jobs and lives and trillions of dollars of, of debt that sits in investment portfolios and other things. Um, you know, so that, that's going to be really, um, challenging as those, those assets turn, turn upside down and, yeah. and bonds default and, mm-hmm. and, you know, countries end up nationalizing some of those things. So, so. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you might even see, for instance, uh, a country whose economy has depended on oil experts, uh, launching their own cryptocurrency. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right? yeah, we'll see how that one works. I, I don't know enough about the the Venezuelan central bank to to say whether that um <laughs> whether they'll just de, you know depopulate or um, uh, inflate it you know to whatever. So uh, yeah, it's an interesting experiment. We'll say that. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So so yeah, that, I I wanted to to drill into solar coin and and sure. understand a little bit of that. I mean, that's uh, we haven't really talked much about blockchain. And what's interesting about this entire conversation was that. It's it's it was your work and uh, your connection to blockchain that actually spurred my interest in in the nature of value in the in the first place. So, 
yeah, tell tell us a little about a, a bit about your involvement and 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 really the goals of of, of SolarCoin. Sure, sure. That's an interesting one. So you know, my my book is the nature of value, and it's trying to understand where what are the first principles, where does economic value um, emerge from, and then how does how does an economy you know work? What's its whole purpose of the system? And one of the interesting things I found um, or came across or came up with was a theory for the value of currency. That sounds fairly trivial, um, but it's actually not. Uh, uh, current economics really has no theory of value for the absolute value of a currency. They have the, the traditional economics has a theory of value for the relative value of a currency, i.e., if I can buy one apple um, with a dollar, um, and all of a sudden there are twice as many dollars out there tomorrow, it'll probably cost me two dollars to buy the same apple. It's a relative, you know, supply-demand function. That being said, why that dollar or two is worth an apple, the absolute value, is kind of a mystery. Um, and so I'm working on a paper with a, a friend from Columbia uh, University um, here in New York, um, and we are coming up with a theory of value for currency, which I believe is quite interesting. We've done research across 100 economies, currency issuances, et cetera, et cetera, that understands currency as a protocol um, and a belief system, and et cetera. The reason it's interesting is the figures and the theory tie out for gold and for um, Bitcoin earlier on, um, before it got highly speculative, in terms of putting evaluation on it. And it mm -hmm. treats currency as a positive economic externality. Where I'm going with all of that is um, about three or four years ago, I launched a project co-founded called SolarCoin, uh, which was an experiment, um, which is very interesting, I think, using the a currency as a positive economic externality to reward um, solar energy production. Basically saying, look, uh, solar energy is a really interesting thing. It's, it's probably a net positive to have more energy that's clean and renewable. Um, let's link these things together. And so we grow the economic um, actors or the participants in the solar coin network by distributing or issuing the currency into circulation um, every time someone globally produces one megawatt hour mm. of solar energy. And so far, the, the, the data in terms of the participants in the network and the, uh, you know, the theory of currency um, is, holding, is holding true. Mm. Uh, and so right now it's distributed in 56 countries, and we expect it to become um, very interesting um, over the coming uh, the coming years. The goal is to create an incentive to accelerate um, solar energy uptake um, over the next 40 years. Well, it's, I mean, that's something that we're very, uh, you know, very much believers in. And uh, at Momenta uh, Partners, we've worked with uh, other, other, back to both traditional energy or traditional oil and gas and, and uh, clean energy companies. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of change coming, but you can really see the writing on the wall with the, uh, the experience, the experience curve is a powerful force and, and it yeah. ultimately is, is going to drive uh, really rapid change, I think, in certainly within our lifetime. So, um, yeah, that's 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 really uh, really fascinating. So, yeah, I think yeah. the last the last question that I always uh, like to ask people is is wh whether there are any resources or books that you commonly like to recommend to to friends or colleagues, and it doesn't have to be tech or investing books, but just sure. really interesting resources that that you find uh, 
worthy enough to to share with 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 people. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I you know, facts are easy to find. Um, what I mean by is, you know, if you need to learn something, you find it on the internet. Um, interesting frameworks for thinking about things, or or you know, new discoveries of, of something that's already out there, um, but just that, that give you, let's say, fresh eyes to see it. Um, to, to, to paraphrase a good philosopher. Um, one of the more recent books I found was, uh, was an interesting read was uh, Sapiens. If uh, oh yeah, by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Sapiens is really interesting, and and Homo Deux, which is yeah. the, the sequel, um, was good as well. Sapiens was interesting because um, I, you know, I actually referenced some of it in, in my thinking about currency in the concept of the intersubjective, um, the thing that so much of our value is not subjective and it's not objective. It's culture, it's, you know, belief, it's, it's protocols, it's law, mm. etc. Right. Um, one of the other really, really um, interesting books, I, I would say, by the way, for, for, for any of your um, uh, clients who are in the uh, um, utility industry, if they have solar facilities, um, we'd be happy to talk to them about getting a solar coin for their, uh, for their clients or customers, uh, free of charge. Distributed. Oh, so, great. Um, we're, we're, we're targeting over a million installations um, this huh. year. So, you know, um, we're looking for, for um, monitoring platforms and others who'd be interested in exploring the Oh, great. Deal. Um, the, the other book that I, I thought was really interesting when I read it, and I still think it's a profound, profound insight, um, is, is um, a book called Why Capitalism Won in the West and Failed mm. uh, in Many Other Places. And that's by Hernando de Soto. Oh, to be an economist, right? And um, do you know it or? Well, I, I haven't. I uh, I know who he is, but I have not read his okay. book. So that's fantastic. It's, it's it's really worthwhile for understanding why um, the power of property rights and the concept of dead capital. Mm -hmm. And 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 dead capital is is the let's say you lived in Egypt and you and your family squatted in a a home in an apartment for three generations, right? You, you've owned this apartment. You don't have your formal title to the apartment. You don't formally own it. If you go to sell it, uh, let's say on the market, if you had the title or everything, it would be worth a hundred grand. If you go to sell it because you don't have the title, you informally own it. So all your neighbors know who you are. And you know, for 70 years, you've occupied it. You might get 50 grand, hmm. right? And so the Delta there is 50 grand. Um, it's what's called dead capital. Now that's really interesting because dead capital hinders economic growth. This is, mm -hmm. I, I studied cultural anthropology with a focus on sustainable economic development. Really interested in, in why are some people getting really, really rich and why are some stuck in, in relatively you know, cha challenged situations in different countries. And dead capital is an interesting answer to that question. The amount of dead capital globally, the last estimate I heard um, was $15 trillion. Wow. Now, to put that number in perspective, all of the overseas development, all of the aid given like last year was about $186 billion. Huh. What this means is that the resources or the capital, which could be used for mortgaging, lending, borrowing, and studying healthcare, taxes, roads, etc., is sitting in countries, but it's poorly recognized due to either poor um, bureaucracy or poor what I call soft infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe not the laws themselves, but the way they're implemented in the regulation. Um, blockchain actually has a place, a role to play in that in terms of land titling and internet. Absolutely. And yeah, it's, I know. It's a fascinating been talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so for me, 
from my own perspective on, on let's say human progress and human development, it's one of the most amazing opportunities to provide resources to people that already have them, um, but they're just not freed up. And it's something we take for granted, that you can get a mortgage on your home or you could move across town or you know, get a loan in an emergency. And so you have $15 trillion, I'm sure the number's bigger because it's a, a dated figure, $15 trillion in um, dead capital that's literally existing among some of the, the poorest or most vulnerable populations in the world um, that just needs to be unlocked with good policy and procedure. The other thing that's fun about the book of why capitalism won in the West is it takes you back historically to the U.S. right after the revolution. Mm -hmm. And it says, look, here's, here's a country that's poor. They have no federal government. They just won a guerrilla war, kind of. They've got no budget. They got a 5% literacy rate and problems with yellow fever and malaria. But it's the U.S., right? <laughs> and so the question is, okay, how do, we, how, do we, how do we solve all those problems? And some of it was um, good property rights and the implementation of good laws. And, and um, so it's a really fascinating book and a, and a really interesting read about, again, a hidden phenomenon. There's $15 trillion that's laying around out there. It's in the physical world, but it can't be realized or leveraged because of, of a poor organization. Wow, that's that's really incredible. I can't wait to uh, can't wait to read that. I listen, Nick. This has been fascinating. I'm uh, I think you've touched on a lot of a lot of very uh, fundamental and profound concepts around value creation and and these and these frameworks for for thinking about industries and competition, innovation, and evolution. Uh, it's been it's been really really interesting and, and I and, and valuable speaking to you and I, I appreciate your taking the time to do this. No problem. I hope it's so, useful. That's the most important thing for you and everyone else. <laughs> absolutely. Well, uh, thanks to everybody for listening. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners at, with bringing you uh, another episode of our Edge podcast series and, and our guest was Nick Gogarty, who is the co-founder of SolarCoin and author of The Nature of Value. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ed. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.